Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Recently, I ordered a shipment from Critic in a Box. You send them information about yourself, and they ship you a specifically selected critic. So let's see what I got. Chili for breakfast. Ms. Wolf may fancy herself a chili and cilantro-infused holly-go-lightly, but this critic thought the dish tasted like newsprint and was salted so meekly that eating it was as satisfying as waving a white flag while the Ostrogoths sacked one's small village. Wow, that really hurts. Anyway, I've I gotta get ready for work. As she picked out her clothes, many of Ms. Wolves' outfits looked over-designed, with tabs and bits added to shoulders and panels attached to knees, or drastically under-designed, drab hoodies, baggy pants, and beige underthings. Hey, cut it out! I already see where this is going. You sit there on the sidelines, one of the kids who's afraid to ask anybody to dance, but totally willing to make fun of how the rest of the kids move out on the floor. And yet there were times when Ms. Wolf showed flashes of authenticity and eloquence. This critic enjoyed her speech denouncing the Sartrean labyrinth into which she had paradoxically plunged herself. That's better. Come on, we gotta get going. I cannot be late. At other times, the pace felt unnecessarily rushed. This critic thought... Shut up! Story of my life. People only want the good reviews. Today on the show is Criticism Art... And now, one critic wrote, his shows are like buying scalp tickets to see Leontine Price at the Met, only to find out she's singing the Katy Perry songbook while roller skating backwards with a cantaloupe balanced on her neck. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, I had a hard time understanding that particular review. I actually would be something I would buy a ticket to, but it seemed like maybe the critic wouldn't. So when my son was, quick story here, my, when my son was, I figured out today, 11 years old, uh, he and I went to see him a movie called uh, A Knight's Tale with Heath Ledger. Uh, and I just happened to love it in a kind of a brainless way. And we walked out of it. And my son, who could read my body language very well, said, you really liked that movie, didn't you? And I said, yes. And he said, you really liked it, right? And I said, yes. He said, you didn't feel like there were people who were not correctly cast in the movie? I said, no, no, no. I, no. Was, you didn't think there were ideas or themes that they could have worked on a little bit better, developed a little bit more? I said, no, is that what it's like to go see a movie with me? And he said, yeah, pretty much, actually. And that's sort of the curse of critical engagement, right, that there are an awful lot of people uh, who can just sort of go through life, kind of like Thomas Hayden Church in the movie Sideways, if you recall. It's kind of uh, it's a wine movie, but it's really about criticism and connoisseurship. You know, Paul Giamatti is constantly smelling flutterings of Edom and stuff like that, and wine and Thomas Hayden Church is this guy who goes, well, it tasted pretty good. I thought that tasted pretty good, or I don't like that so much, which is kind of how a lot of people live their lives. On the other hand, there's this whole class, this priesthood of critics uh, who who invite us to engage more, to think more, to dwell more with art, and maybe even to be affected or changed by art. So that's the conversation we're about to have today. What are critics for? Uh, and to join us, we have an all-star panel. Uh, we have A.O. Scott, uh, who's been on our show many times before, and he is the co-chief film critic for The New York Times and the author of Better Living Through Criticism, How to Think About Art, Pleasure, Beauty, and Truth. Michael Rydell is with us, theater columnist for The New York Post, and the co-host with uh, Susan Howell. 
Haskins of Theater Talk and the author of Razzle Dazzle, The Battle for Broadway. And also making a return to the show, uh, Carrie Rickey, film critic and writer and former film critic for the Philadelphia Inquirer, among many other places. So uh, where to begin? Well, Tony Scott, I'm going to ask you to sort of kick us off since this is your book. Um, who, who did you write this book for? Did you write this book for... Uh, consumers of criticism and therefore of art? Did you write it for those people who get reviewed by critics? Did you write it as kind of a pep talk to your fellow critics? I suppose the answer is going to be all of the above. Um, I primarily wrote it in a way for myself just to to, to figure out what I thought. I'd been doing this job um, for a while and, uh, you know, every now and then um, – I would read an article about how critics were useless or um, somebody would come up to me at a party and, and, and say, what is it you do exactly? How, how, is, that, how is that even a job? Um, so I, I, I started out thinking, well, I would, I would you know, justify myself to myself and, and um, defend myself against all of the, uh, the critics of criticism um, out there. And, and, but it shifted over time and, and I, I got – less interested in a way in defending my own professional prerogatives or the or the guild that I'm part of and more thinking about what criticism is as an ordinary everyday activity how how can it describe and how can it influence um the way that we think about entertainment and works of art um so it's it's pitched much more at uh not at my fellow professionals who are reviewing it anyway and finding all kinds of interesting things to say about it. Um, but at, uh, at people who like, who like movies who maybe read um, criticism or who maybe don't. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you about that later because obviously this is a work of meta-criticism and the reviews of it are therefore meta-meta-criticism. And I've even seen one piece of meta-meta-meta-criticism, somebody reviewing uh, Leon Wieseltier's book of your, uh, review of your book. So uh, there's a lot of layers here. <laughs> we, it'll take us forever to get our noses out of our navels navel, here. Michael Riedel, um, yes. so this one of the things we hear now is that this priesthood, priesthood is somewhat imperiled, you know, that, that there aren't as many yep. newspapers. Newspapers are where critics live. Uh, that on the other hand, there's the rise of the dangerous amateur that somehow or other, whatever this job is, uh, it's it's a jo- it's a ticking time bomb of a job. What do you make of that? Well, first of all, I want to say, uh, along with um, uh, Tony, this is my first book, so I'm having the experience of the, the shoe on the other foot. And right. what I've learned about critics is that if they like your book, they're brilliant. If they don't, they're complete idiots. Uh, I think that holds true from anybody who's been reviewed by a critic. But the job is imperiled now. I think in many ways Tony's fine book um, – should give a boost to the spirits of a lot of my friends who are drama critics who are living in terror now of being laid off and losing their jobs at newspapers. And I think Tony makes the good case that uh, criticism still is relevant and perhaps may be even more relevant in the age of what you refer to as the amateur critic. I don't like to look down my nose at people who go on to uh, websites and internet chat rooms and have valid opinions about shows. But there is a lot of noise out there. And I do think there is room for someone like Tony or like myself in Theater World who've spent big chunk of our lives going to movies, going to plays, and thinking about them, uh, and having created some of our own values with which to back up our judgments about the art form that we cover. So, um, Kerry Rickey, uh, Tony Scott, makes the argument that criticism uh, is not only symbiotic with art, but may even be an art uh, in and of itself, uh, maybe a later-born child uh, in the same family tree of art, but, but also art. What do you make of that argument? 
Uh, I think that in some cases it can be. In all cases, no. I, I think it's very hard to make an argument that, let's say, the Avengers is art. Um, and I would put it in a different class of movie than I would put the the big short or Selma or, you know, to name two. But, um, yes, I think some we know some criticism is art. I mean, we, we've read Pauline Kael. We've read uh, a lot of many critics who, whose work is, is lyrical and fascinating and challenges us. So uh, let's get to the thing that Carrie just cited, because to me it's one of the really interesting um, battlegrounds for criticism, which is how, how, first of all, I should say that one of the many things that I have been an abject failure at, for a brief time I was probably the worst rock critic in America. And one of the reasons I was a terrible rock critic is I really had a hard time um, evaluating something on its own terms, what it was trying to do, what it was trying to be. You know, I would go and I would see Fleetwood Mac in the Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham era, and I would say, God, this is terrible and self-indulgent and referential, and why isn't it Why isn't it the birds? The birds were really good. This is horrible. But I wasn't really, and this was true in case after case, I wasn't really necessarily engaging with the art um, in terms of what it set out to do, what it set out to be. And so, Tony Scott, this is a question, right, is do you have platonic standards against which you measure everything, or do you at some point have to make a decision to sort of say, all right, well, this is what this thing is trying to do, and I can only judge it that far. I can't compare it to Strindberg. Um, I, I don't think that that uh, that there are that there are kind of absolute external um, standards of, of of excellence. I think that there are standards of excellence that we are always creating, that we are always arguing about, that are part part of the the, the very work of criticism um, and of culture and of art is to is to figure out um, what those standards are and how to apply them. Um, I think it is important uh, to to have a sense of proportion, certainly to figure out. Um, you know what what a film is trying to be um, and to measure it in those terms it makes it makes no sense um, you know to, to to compare an apple and an orange to you know to say well you know zoolander 2 falls short of um, of the standard of citizen Kane you know because you're you're not saying anything that's that's useful um, or meaningful um, but you also have to uh, take into account um, and I think this is this is the in a way one of the most difficult um, but also one of the most worthwhile things about criticism is that you have your own experience. The thing that you know for sure about what you saw is what you thought of it and, and how it felt to you and what that experience was like of sitting in that theater, watching that play, um, watching that uh, movie. And you have to somehow translate your own your own your own feeling, your own kind of um, visceral or, or emotional response, um, your own reflex that that you liked it or that you hated it or that you were bored you have to turn that into an argument you have to turn that into something that's going to be useful and interesting to somebody else and that is the key turn that i think um, makes criticism at very least a craft if not always an art how to how to organize um those thoughts how to how to pass that information on um in a form that will be um persuasive or at least provocative for other people and engaging. I mean, I think the um, uh, first and foremost, the job of the critic is to be an entertaining and an engaging writer because very often you're going to be reviewing a movie or a play that many people reading you are never going to see. But what you want to do is hold their interest as an essayist, as a good journalist, as a good reporter. And I do think the best critics have a reportorial side to them that they will – 
convey to you what it felt like to sit in that theater last night to watch Lin-Manuel Miranda do Hamilton. And indeed, the value of criticism before the video age was that it's the only record that we have in the theater of uh, Shakespeare's plays of Ibsen's early plays. Uh, it's the critics who saw those, who, who, who captured great performances lost to the ages, great plays. The experience of seeing something new and exciting in the art form will be forever captured by the critic who was there. You know, that, Gary, that historical piece is, is interesting. And I think also it's a struggle a little bit for the critic. Um, a, a lot of times when new art forms come along, and sometimes they even are implicitly a rejection of craft in the way that the critic has previously understood it. I think of punk. I think to a certain degree of Dada. You know, th- these are movements that come along to say, to say, you know what, everything that you think about how you evaluate stuff, we're going to throw that out and do something else. And and. The challenge for the critic is to to see it now and maybe anticipate the way it will even look 25 years down the road, where it's seen as a movement as opposed to people playing their guitars really loudly and not all that well. Oh, yeah, Carrie, I was wondering, I was inviting you to react to that one. Oh, uh, absolutely. I didn't hear my name cited. Forgive me. Um, Absolutely. Uh, I think the French New Wave was like that. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have jump cuts. You shouldn't do that. You don't, you know, you shouldn't be flippant in a in a drama about murder but it but the french new wave was all those things and uh you know and it was very exciting to many people and it was a huge challenge to what the french called the tradition of quality in french cinema but um not and not everyone embraced it it was you know perceived as a threat and now you know in the last few years you know digital cinema was considered a threat to um film itself and uh it's important to kind of be aware of 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 the new but not uh, be wary of it and to you know see test your reaction and i don't know uh, about the gentleman on this uh in this colton colloquy but i certainly feel that when i sit down to write i am a medium for this movie or book or song or artwork and you know it kind of passes through me and I record my response to it and I try to write about it in the tone it was delivered well this there's so many ways to go here so many places we could branch off well let's talk about what Carrie just said and I'll throw it back to Tony and to Michael so Carrie says a medium although you're not always a medium through which something flows right sometimes do you somebody else's um, <laughs> what <laughs> Sometimes it gets caught in my cross. That's exactly where I was going to go. Sometimes you're a hammer or a cudgel or something like that. Sometimes you're saying, no, it's my job to say this is meretricious. Don't be fooled by this. Don't waste your time on this or do waste your time on this, but certainly have your sensors, your antennae up. So, um, Tony, this is something you treat of in your book, the whole question of uh, the bad review uh, and also the, the, uh, the trend uh, that was documented a few years ago in book reviewing of avoiding bad reviews, of good reviews only. So, so let's talk a little bit about the role of the pan, the role of the takedown. Um, how do you see that, Tony? Um, well, I, I see it a, a few different ways. I mean, I, I think that 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 it's very important. Um, what one of the the functions that we we serve um, as as critics is to be independent and and honest and unbought uh, voices. Um, when we're when you're writing about movies or certainly about 
Broadway in in New York City, you're writing about very big industries, very very heavily capitalized um, art forms, and that have enormous resources of marketing and publicity and hype at their disposal, and they can place all kinds of lovely soft features in newspapers and magazines, and and the stars will go out on the on the on the talk shows, and they will create an enormous sense of of, of anticipation. Um, and it's not necessarily our job to tear that down all of the time, but it is our job um, to approach it with some skepticism and to talk about it honestly um, and to risk um, sometimes being out of touch with where the audience seems to be going and certainly um, what the, the, the makers of, and, and distributors and producers of, of, these, of these things um, would, would want us to go. So I, I think it, it's um, – I, I – don't think it's it's always appropriate. I mean, I try not to be too cruel, too too sadistic. Although it can be a lot of fun, you know, to to, to beat up on something. And it is a chance when you're writing. One one of the 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 guilty pleasures, one of the maybe the vices of criticism is the funny negative review. It's a lot easier um, to make jokes uh, and and to feel like you're a clever, witty writer when you're when you're tearing something down. Um, but I think it's important in the end um, to to. Um, to be honest and, and to be tough. And that's the way that you defend over the long term the chance for the art to be as good as it can be. I think that when you pull your punches, if you're too soft, this is goes to what you're saying about, about what's often said about book reviewing or other kinds of reviewing. Well, that we have to be, you know, we have to support these these art forms are in danger um, you know, independent film or or various forms of of, of theater need our protection. Um, need to be kind of nurtured and 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 coddled. And um, I think that's a very dangerous idea. I think it's because audiences will always go, and they will always they will not be fooled. And if 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 you're part of um, fooling them, then you have failed at your job. Yes, yeah, so then you're then you're a booster. And I think there's there's nothing more detrimental to a critic who becomes. A consistent champion of something or an artist all the time and even when that artist does a bad job, you still pull your punches because the audience is not. They will go and they will cease to trust you and your voice and your judgment if you let them down. Now, Tony used the word tough and I think we do have to be tough. I do think there's a little bit of a gleeful sadism in all of us who do this. Um, and it's fun. Listen, it's fun, as Tony says, to write a bad review. And frankly, the meaner I've been in my career, the more money my employers have paid me. So there's a practical <laughs> side to that as well. But I do think that there's something constructive, if you will, in destructive criticism. Artful criticism can be written about something that is terrible. And I think of George Bernard Shaw when he was a critic. And the leading playwright of his day was a guy named Sardou who wrote silly melodramas. And Shaw demolished those melodramas and in so doing started to make, make the case for the realistic dramatic theater of Ibsen. So in the destruction of something, he was also trying to create something. And I think that's when tough almost thuggish criticism can be beneficial to the art form. Michael, I want to stay with you on this for just a second, too, and say you're in a slightly, slightly different position than Tony and Carrie, that uh, it is a slightly more precarious uh, situation. There aren't, first of all, as many plays. They are precariously financed. Uh, certainly in his day, Frank Rich was called the Butcher of Broadway. There was, there's often been a sense that, that, that the, in, the, in New York, a, a New York Times, a bad New York Times review can shut a show down. I don't know whether you feel as though you have that power or not, but certainly um, people's livelihoods are, are hanging in the balance sometimes based yes. on what you say. That, you know, on the other hand, if that's the kind of thing that bothers you, it could be argued you're in the wrong line of work. 
No, it doesn't bother me at all. I mean, the Times always had the uh, the, the bazooka, and uh, Frank could uh, kill the show with one bad review. I, working in tabloid newspapers at the New York Post with a weekly column, I kill through the um, steady drip, drip, drip of the Chinese <laughs> water torture because I can go back week in and week out and mock and ridicule poor old Julie Taymor and Spider Man, whatever. So, and uh, uh, that's fun, uh, you know. And I'm not I'm not a, a, a critic in the traditional sense. I'm I, I'm a commentator on the theater. I can the the news and the gossip and the backstage feuds and and I'm as a columnist I can take sides I can promote someone I can go after someone I can go after a show clearly my column is uh, is opinionated but I believe in the rough and tumble of the Broadway world I believe in Addison DeWitt and All About Eve I believe in getting into the intrigue I don't want to say that I'm policing people or trying to keep them honest but as Tony said earlier and it is true. The Broadway people I cover are extraordinarily rich, and they have many means of marketing their shows at their disposal to run around critics, to overcome critics. I do feel that it's good to have somebody like me just sitting on the sidelines, skeptically snickering from time to time at their hopes and their dreams. All right. So uh, last year in a movie, we saw some of that attitude made perhaps a little chillier and more toxic in the form of Lindsay Duncan playing a critic in Birdman. Let's hear a little bit of her and Michael Keaton. Well, you know, what has to happen in a person's life for them to become a critic anyway? What are you writing? Another review? Is it any good? Is it? Is it bad? Did you even see this? Let me read it. I will call the police. Call the police. Let's read you. Callum. Callum's a label. Blackluster. That's just the labels. Margin. Margin, are you kidding me? It sounds like you need penicillin to clear that up. That's a label too. These are just labels. You just label everything. That's so lazy. You just. You're a lazy. You're a lazy. Do you know what this is? You don't even know what that is. You don't. You know why? Because you can't see this thing if you don't know how to label it. You mistake all those little noises in your head for true knowledge. Are you finished? No, I'm not finished. There's nothing in here about technique. There's nothing in here about structure. Nothing here about intention. It's just a bunch of crappy opinions backed up by even crappier comparisons. You write a couple of paragraphs. And you know what? None of this costs you anything. You risk nothing, 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 nothing. I'm a actor. So uh, there's a little bit more um, of Michael Keaton in there than uh, I had hoped for and a little less of Lindsay Duncan because what she says, uh, and Carrie, I, I'm sure you're— destroy you. Yeah, she says, I will, I will shut your play down. But she also says, look, you're a celebrity. I'm kind of a gatekeeper uh, in, in between the world that you come from and the world that you now want to inhabit. That, that's my job. I mean, she says it in this incredibly punishing and, and rejecting way. But she's sort of making a, the point, Carrie, uh, I'm asking you, but it's she's making the point that Michael sort of said before. This is a rough and tumble world. You want to get in here. You think the fact that you're famous in Hollywood and that you used to be a superhero on film is good enough. Well, it's not good enough for me. And I feel as though part of my job is to to defend this territory against imposters. How how did you react to that scene? Well, I think a part of that scene, um, she basically tells Michael Keaton she will destroy him, which I don't think you say that before you seen a work. True, true. <laughs> you, I, I believe that all of us here walk in to a, a play or a movie 
with um, neutral or with high hopes, I would hope, and uh, uh, not prejudge. But um, I don't like the word gatekeeper, but I do feel that um, I am I am here to warn people not to waste several hours of their life if something is a piece of drag. <laughs> all right, we have to grab a quick break here. We'll be back with more of all three guests and a conversation about criticism after this. Density without intensity. No life. Boys with their clothes on. I must paint a factory next. <laughs> All right. Uh, the, the sound of critical voices in Sunday in the Park with George. Um, so our, our guest right now is our, include Michael Riedel, a theater columnist for the New York Times and co-host with Susan Haskins of Theater Talk, author of Razzle Dazzle, The Battle for Broadway, uh, A.O. Scott, co-chief film critic for the New York Times and the author of Better Living Through Criticism, How to Think About Art, Pleasure, Beauty, and Truth, uh, and Carrie Rickey, film critic and writer for, and former film critic for the Philadelphia Inquirer. So I want to ask all of you, and, and I think, um, Tony, I'll start with you on this. Um, okay, so for... For most people, and for most people who read criticism and who think critically about movies, um, there's, I think, a ticking away like a little bomb in the back of their heads, this notion that there really is sort of objectivity or that things, some things are objectively good, some things are objectively bad. It isn't really a conversation that, like, I, for example, I think Hail Caesar, even though I'm a big Coen Brothers fan, I think it's a bad movie. I think it's an objectively bad movie. I'm not really interested in somebody else's argument that it's a good movie. I feel as though somehow or other... I could prove that it's a bad movie. I could summon a set of aesthetic standards and arguments and say, no, this proves it's a bad movie. But I'm wondering whether a critic can ever think that, that once again, that there's some kind of platonic um, standards to which anything can be compared and really accurately measured. Well, I, I mean, I think objectivity is is, is always, um, uh, you know, kind of a, a bit of a briar patch. And, and I think that, that um, it, it kind of gets us into all kinds of philosophical questions that, um, that we're maybe not, not – um, at least I'm not equipped to, uh, to adjudicate. And I, and I spend some time on this in, 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 in the book, just even the question of sort of what are we talking about? Are we talking about properties of the thing um, that we're writing about? Or are we talking about the experience that we have? Um, and I guess, I mean, yes, you could do that uh, with, with, with Hail Caesar, and someone else could have an equally persuasive, um, equally well-documented, um, equally coherently argued uh, um, case, you know, for it being a great movie. Um, and a lot of people might fall somewhere in, in, in the middle. I, I think it's much more about uh, persuasiveness um, than it is about objectivity. It's about it's about the case that you're making, um, kind of in 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 the court of um, of, of of public discourse in in the world of um, 
of print and of media, which is always an argumentative world. And I don't think that that, that these questions ever really get settled. I think um, when they do, when a consensus is reached, is in a way when a kind of pall falls over the work of art and it stops being interesting. I think as long as something can be argued about... Um, as long as somebody can can cast doubt on uh, the consensus that holds it as a masterpiece, there's still there's still hope for it to remain interesting. But I, but I don't think I, I don't think objectivity is is helpful. I mean, I certainly think I'm right, you know, um, most of the time, and 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 <laughs> would argue strongly against people um, who I think are wrong. But 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 at at at, at the end of the day, um, it 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 it's a matter of how well I've persuaded. Um, my readers, rather than uh, how well I've upheld some kind of platonic or or, or objective um, criteria. Well, Kerry Ricky, uh, my operative Paul Drake, has just informed me that you liked Hail Caesar, uh, and so I, now I now look forward to reading your piece on it too, because I, I also. There... Um, uh, well, can I say something? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I don't think it's an objectively good movie, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> okay, talk about the difference between those two things. Um, I think that Hail Caesar probably requires. Um, a lot of knowledge of Hollywood movies and Hollywood production and made in, in the late 40s and early 50s and of the culture in the late 40s and early 50s. And I think um, if you don't have some of that knowledge or most of that knowledge, you don't know what the F is going on. <laughs> <laughs> and it looks kind of silly. But I think it was... Uh, I, liked, I liked much of it. And it just it made me laugh, and it kind of celebrated um, uh, old modes of production, shall we say, uh, musicals, uh, aquatic movies, westerns, and uh, it did it with a, with a uh, love affection, and panache. So one of the things that it has, and maybe it's one of the um, standards that critics do repeatedly apply, is self-consciousness. It's aware of what it's trying to do. It's not blundering around trying to, to, to do something that it doesn't even understand or having no purpose. That would seem to be something that would really militate against a critical appreciation. Um, Michael Riedel, I want to sort of, since we opened this segment with Sondheim, you know, I think he's an interesting case, too, because here's a guy who, in, in a lot of his work, I mean, never so obviously as in that little clip from Sunday in the Park, but in a lot of his work, you can hear him talking back to people who appraise him, whether those people are critics, whether those people are fans, whether those people are, are producers uh, early in his career who might have not produced his work because it didn't have a hum a mummable melody. Um, you know, and, and there, there is the question that, I mean, he embodies that artistic question. Who am I making this work for? Do I just, do I want to make Funny Girl? And people would really like Funny Girl, you know? Or do I want to make something that rises to the level of my own critical sense of what I should do uh, and risk the possibility that people won't like it? Well, far be it for me to uh, put any words in uh, Steve Sondheim's mouth or any artist's mouth, but I don't think in my conversations over the years with uh, composers and lyricists and playwrights, I really don't think they calculate it that way. I think an artist does what an artist wants to do. The artist is engaged by a particular subject matter, and he writes it in the only way that he knows how to write it. In the case of Steve, 
Steve, who was tutored by Oscar Hammerstein, came up in the tradition of the golden age of the American musical, and indeed his early ones were part of that golden age. And the last one he wrote really was A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, which is a very funny, traditional American musical comedy. But he was young, and I think he felt, I understand this form now, and now within it I can change it and play around with it and do something else. And then he does Anyone Can Whistle, which was a catastrophe on Broadway, but an interesting show in his development. And then he moves into things like Company and Follies that many critics, including Clive Barnes then at the New York Times, did not care for very much. They appreciated it, but they couldn't embrace it in Clive's case. Some critics loved it. The problem for Steve, and it was something that I think dogged him throughout much of his career, was that the audiences did not embrace what he was doing. Because when you tell the audience in 1971 you're doing a musical called Follies, they expect to get a Ziegfeldian-type Follies. And he gave them a show about middle-aged people having emotional crises. And that's not what the audience expected. Now, the irony, of course, is when Steve was shunned by those audiences and indeed some critics back then, I would argue now that the slobbering over everything Steve does by the critics rubs me a little bit the wrong way. (laughs) And indeed, my... um, Uh, uh, A brief and very superficial friendship with Steve ended several years ago when he came out with a a musical. It was originally called uh, Wise Guys, and then it became Gold. And because Steve was now the god of the American musical theater, he and uh, the director of the show, Hal Prince, another god of the American musical theater, went to the powerful critics and said, we're going to take the show out of town, but please don't review it. Mm -hmm. And all of those major critics said, okay, because you are so important. And I said, no. This is a world premiere of a new Stephen Sondheim musical that reunites him with Hal Prince. They had not done a show for many years since Merrily We Roll Along. It was not announced it was coming to Broadway. It was at the Goodman Theater. And from my point of view, as a journalist, as a reporter whose responsibility is to my newspaper and my readers, not to Steve and not to Hal, I had to say, no, I'm sorry. I'm going to come and write about your show. And you know what? It wasn't very good. (laughs) And that's the last time I ever spoke to Steve Sondheim. (laughs) So, But, you know, Tony Scott, let's go back to the beginning of what Michael is saying. Because um, so it could be argued that if critics have a job, one of their jobs would be um, to see early on rather than too late. Um, what Stephen Sondheim is doing, ways in which he might be fracturing our understanding uh, of the Broadway melody, that that the purpose of Clement Greenberg is to tell us why Barnett Newman is worth looking at in a museum. And, and that um, if audiences don't get Barnett Newman, if audiences don't get Stephen Sondheim, and if critics haven't done a very good job of explaining why that is and maybe bringing audiences along with them, that that's a fundamental failure of whatever it is that critics do. How do you react to that? Well, I I think that one of the things that critics do, um, not necessarily as a as a, as an ideal part of the 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 job description, but as a matter of fact. Um, is to get things terribly, terribly wrong, um, and um, and to often represent um, the, the 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 worst of the conventional w- wisdom. Um, and and I'm saying this, you know, not just in accusation against other critics, but I, I kind of, you know, you, you're you're a creature of your own time and place, um, and you absorb uh, a lot of the prejudices of that time and place, and you hope that you will be able to to embrace the new to see the new um to to catch the signals from the future that that forward looking art can bring um and and certainly i agree with uh my great um 
you know, fictional role model Anton Ego from the movie Ratatouille that, you know, that the new needs friends and that and that the one very useful thing that critics can do is to is to champion um, the new. But it but it's it's also true um, in in the larger historical sense that uh, the 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 blindness or myopia or short sightedness of, of critics is is very important. I mean, my great predecessor at the New York Times, Bosley Crowther, was um, for many years a, a, a kind of embodiment of, of a conventional wisdom of a sort of middle brow kind of what people thought of the New York Times and, um, you know, was very dismissive of, of, of Bonnie and Clyde. And his dismissal of Bonnie and Clyde was one of the things that enabled um, people like Roger Ebert and Pauline Kael, a new generation of critics who saw something there that he couldn't, to articulate what it was um, that they saw. And his role at the New York Times was also to be a kind of a foil and a lightning rod for the more adventurous critics who were writing in the early 60s and late 50s at the Village Voice, people like Jonas Mikas and, and, and Andrew Saris. So um, so there's not any one way to, to do it. I mean, I certainly like to think um, that I can that I can spot um, what is what is promising and new, what is breaking the forms and the patterns and the and the conventions. Um, but it may turn out to be the case that that you know thirty or forty years from now, um, the when the Museum of Modern Art is showing a retrospective on the later films of of Adam Sandler, um, and and uh, you know with particular attention to to Jack and Jill and and Blended as the as the as the world changing um, masterpieces that they will have been discovered to be, um, that I'll be held up for ridicule for not for not seeing how brilliant they were. Oh, they'll be on. Or when the Berlin up op- or what? Excuse me. When the Berlin Opera House does Julie Taymor's Spider Man, I will be shown <laughs> up and. T- Totally wrong about my judgment about that show. That's right. In either case, your statues will be pulled down at some point. All right. We have to take a break. We'll come back with more of our critics after this. announcements are a pithy and droll satire on contemporary mores. I thought the part of the announcer was played with verve and gusto. These reviews go so much better when you write them yourself. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our interns are Stephanie Reef and Ross Levin. The part of Bill Curry was poorly acted by Nicholas Cage. For show pages, articles, and withering reviews of the Here and Now staff, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, the nose goes to New Haven for the Oscars. And now, back to Colin. Oh, man. You made friends with them. See, friendship is the booze they feed you. Because they want you to get drunk and feel like you belong. Well, it was fun. Because they make you feel cool. Hey, I met you. You are not cool. I know. Even when I thought I was, I knew I wasn't. Because we are uncool. While women will always be a problem for guys like us, most of the great art in the world is about that very problem. Good-looking people, they got no spine. Their art never lasts. They get the girls. We're smarter. 
Yeah, I can really see that now. Because yeah, great art is about you know, guilt and longing and, you know, love disguises sex and sex disguises love. Hey, let's face it. Yeah, you got a big head start. I'm glad you were home. I'm always home. I'm uncool. Me too. You're doing great. The only true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're uncool. Is that my advice to you? And I know you think these guys are your friends. If you want to be a true friend to them, be honest and unmerciful. <laughs> All right, that's Philip Seymour Hoffman, of course, as the great actual critic, Lister Banks, talking on the phone to the young uh, rock and roll writer in Almost Famous. One of the great uh, sort of, I guess, almost a soliloquy uh, about criticism uh, and about distance and detachment and being uncool and being the outsider. But there's so much more in there, too. And uh, we're talking right now to A.O. Scott. Uh, his uh, new book about criticism is called Better Living Through Criticism, How to Think About Art, uh, Pleasure, Beauty, and Truth. Of course, he reviews film for The New York Times. Michael Reed Dell uh, is theater columnist for the New York Post. His new book is Razzle Dazzle, The Battle for Broadway. Carrie Rickey, film critic, writer, former film critic for the Philadelphia Inquirer, is joining us by phone as well. Um, so there are worlds and universes uh, inside that clip. But And I want to go to a slightly different place from where the clip goes, uh, Carrie, although it's in there too. So one, one, one mode that critics sometimes get into uh, and I think about, I mean, Tony uh, talked in the previous segment, uh, he used the term middlebrow. Well, middlebrow is, you know, very much the creation of, uh, uh, of, I mean, that notion is the creation of people like Dwight McDonald and Russell Lines, who were essentially arguing there's something wrong with the culture itself, right? That it's not necessarily the art. It's not Norman Rockwell's fault that people think he, like, people like him better than Mondrian. It's the problem, the problems with the people itself, the audience itself. Vincent Canby, uh, you know, wrote about slob com- comedies. I mean, he didn't make much of a differentiation, I think, between Animal House uh, and a really bad Adam Sandler movie. But it was, there was something wrong with with the culture. But Carrie, I guess I'm wondering, is that the critic's job to say there's something it's not just the the people creating stuff to be consumed, it's the process of consumption. And I'm not hearing Carrie. So Tony, you get to take that one instead. <laughs> yeah. What what <laughs> What about criticizing the whole audience? Yeah, you want to be, become a scold there, Tony. That's what your readers want you to scold them. <laughs> well, uh, you know, uh, there there is there is a there is certainly a tradition of that. I mean, the 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 the, the great highly idiosyncratic um, film critic Manny Farber um, wrote a whole column uh, once called "Blame the Audience," where you know you want to know why why the movies are so terrible. It's the it's the audience's fault. They're um, they're they're suckers for uh, vulgarity and sentimentality and 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 all of this. I think it's much more complicated than that. I think. Um, in fact, you know, uh, in the case of, of Norman Rockwell, subsequent generations of critics have have come along and seen uh, and seen great value um, in 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 his work. And I think there's always a problem uh, for me with the with with those kind of a priori categorizations and hierarchies. Um, something is low, something is high, something is sophisticated, something is 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 coarse or vulgar. Um, those, it seems to me, have have much more to do with with social hierarchies, with ideas about about class and culture than they do with with art. And I think that a lot of works of art, both popular and you know more um, refined or specialized. Um, 
cut against those 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 hierarchies and i think that that audiences should be encouraged um to disobey them also i think um one of the dangers that always exists out there that kind of gets in the way i think of um of 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 criticism and of of a, a, a full um appreciation of of what's out there is is this kind of tracking of tastes you know so you 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 go on amazon um or you go on netflix and you know the, the these algorithms will tell you what kind of person they think you are you know if you like this you might also like that people who bought this also bought that and and you can settle into a kind of uh a kind of comfort zone um that when i think um what maybe audiences should be doing, um, not to get too prescriptive about it, is uh, is being adventurous, is 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 seeking out um, the stuff that maybe nobody is telling you you're going to like or that you don't expect to like. I, I, I think that um, it's 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 very important for critics to encourage that also and not and not to kind of um, lock their readers or themselves or the works of art that we write about into these into these boxes, into these pre-made categories. And, and Michael, you know, just to give an example from New York theater. Um, so I'm this year I'm a subscriber to New York theater workshop because I really like it. Uh, and I think they do great stuff there. On the other hand, I think the first show of the season was called fondly Colette Richard. I don't know whether you, Michael, uh, happened to see it, but it was uh, obviously a very avant-garde um, uh, piece, uh, more experimental theater. I didn't really enjoy I just had driven in from Connecticut. <laughs> I didn't really like it that much. But I will say, reading Hilton Owls later, who didn't like it that much either, but reading Hilton Owls, who at least attempted to put me in some kind of context or put, uh, help me understand the play in some kind of context or where the avant-garde is headed right now or, or something like that. I was very appreciative of the work of a critic at that point saying, okay, well, maybe you didn't like it that much, but here's a bigger way to think about it. How do you react well, to that? Yes, I think that's uh, Hilton fulfilling the primary responsibility of a critic, which is to be an engaging writer and a thinker. And uh, while you may not agree with the critic's particular judgment on the show, uh, you might be um, uh, engaged by his persuasive writing or in the best case scenario, you may not like something, but then the critic presents it in a way that you had not thought of it before and opens up something in it that perhaps you didn't see. And that's just pure intellectual engagement. And I think that's what the what the best critics do. But, you know, I, I don't think critics, critics, if if they attack the audience, if they take, I think it was Mencken who coined, coined people, the bourgeoisie, if you call your readers the bourgeoisie, you're going to start annoying them and you're not going to have many readers. It's not a good thing for a critic to hold his nose up at the audience. You know, uh, Tony, there's two kinds of really famous reviews, reviews that people talk about forever afterwards. One of them, I mean, look, probably the most talked about review of any kind in the last three or four years was, of all things, Pete Wells uh, reviewing a Guy Fieri restaurant and, and yeah. doing it so yeah. viciously that everybody, you know, sent it around and repeated it. But there's another kind of re- review that people talk about and come back to. And, and the one that I, I'm going to use as an example now is 1974. John Landau seeing I just saw ro- the rock and roll pass, flash before my eyes, and I saw something else. I saw rock and roll future and its name is Bruce Springsteen and and people still quote that review people still talk about it but it's the critic doing this job of saying you know what things are about to change right now and everything that you take for granted is about to change and this is something you address in your book that this is one of the jobs of the critic to to say all right yeah there have been all these other things that were really great forget about those for a second listen to this and and you know John Landa in writing that was putting down a huge marker because 
um, we remember that uh, because it came true, you know, because we now know who Bruce Springsteen is and, and, and he's had, you know, um, 40 years since then um, to, to, to make good on that, on that claim. Um, it's very easy to imagine it going another way. I mean, there, there are plenty of cases, I think probably, you know, in my own career, I can think of, of, of times when I've said, you know, stop everything, go out, see this movie, this movie is going to change everything about movies, and then... Um, <laughs> You know, crickets, um, and uh, or, or or people go and they're like, yeah, it was okay, but uh, wow, you know. So, um, so you're you're risking something, but it's good to risk something. I yeah. mean, un- unlike what Michael Keaton is saying in that in that um, in that silly scene from Birdman, um, we are risking something. And I think when when you put yourself out there like that, when you say, look. Um, this really uh, is extraordinary to me. When when you're giving voice to your to your enthusiasm, um, you are making yourself vulnerable in a way. I mean, you you can look you can look very silly, um, and you're also uh, unlike when you're writing a negative review and you're in a position of of mastery. You know, when you're obviously superior to the thing that you're writing about, and so you can put it down um, in all of these witty and satisfying ways. When you're praising something, you're kind of in a posture of 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 submission. You're kind of, you know, in awe of this thing. And you have to try to write as well um, mm-hmm. and as cogently and, and, and with as much intelligence in that case as when, you, as when you're knocking it down. And I think, Tony, I mean, one of the pleasures of this job is to go to the uh, screening room or, in my case, go to the theater and um, be knocked out by something yeah, that's absolutely. thrilling and exciting. And we do have yeah. to stop right there. Michael Riedel, thank you so much. His book is Razzle Dazzle, The Battle for Broadway. Tony Scott, thank you. The book is Better Living Through Criticism. I feel so much better. I wrote the same John Landau review, but it was about Seals and Crofts. Well, you know, I don't know. They sounded really good at the time. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with the news from The Study in New Haven. Come on and join us. It's a live audience, 1 o'clock, The Study on Chapel Street in New Haven. We'd love to see you there. If you're noted by the author as you're making your way out, he reckons you're a talent, he's a mythic. I'd rather be a writer than a critic. Those windows look ridiculous. Oh, and those doors? Lame. Kion, what are you doing to that old building? I'm taking it down. By yelling at it? Well, what do you expect? It's destructive criticism.